Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Start. I'm Nick. And I'm Patrick. And today we have a good friend of mine, uh, Mung Hay, on the show. Uh, Mung is an awesome visual and mobile UI UX designer living in New York City. And uh, yeah, she's a good friend of mine. I met Mung uh, a while ago um, when she was running food spotting eat-ups around the city. Uh, those were great. They included dumpling crawls, uh, dim sum demolition was one of them. They're awesome. Uh, and we've kept in touch ever since. Uh, she's always working on some cool product. She's constantly traveling the world. Uh, but we were finally able to catch up with her and hear how it all started, which, oddly enough, I didn't know this, involves The Sims. Uh, if you're into that game or you just remember it, um, this is a good episode. You're going to want to tune in. This is The Start. Hey, Monk. How you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Patrick. How are you guys? Doing good. You're doing really good. How are you? Well, you just said you're good, so yeah, we're good. Never mind. It's all right. Patrick's in a <laughs> Chinese so food coma. So Yeah, man. All that MSG or whatever they put in there. It's mm. going to knock me out. It's so good. That mm. sounds good. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Monk, we're glad to have you on the show. Um, we're excited to, to learn about you and how you... Uh, got to where you are today which correct me if i'm wrong you're doing some freelance stuff right about now right exactly (laughs) well i mean that's still uh it's not called freelance but it's still doing your own thing um you're just not doing it to have other people pay you but no it's good um mung for all the listeners who unfortunately don't know who you are but fortunately are going to learn about you right now Mm -hmm. why don't you uh tell them who you are, what you do, and um, how you uh, how you got started. Sure. So right now I'm living in New York City. This is actually my 10th year in New York City coming up. Ooh. Happy 10th anniversary. Yeah, congratulations. Thank That's you. a lot. Yeah, exactly. And the only reason why I thought about it was because of you guys and reflecting on when I came here and all the things that I thought I would be doing in 10 years because everyone has their five-year plan and 10-year plan and then like whatever your plan and I'm definitely not where I thought I would be in 10 years (laughs) well I definitely do not have a plan so that's okay (laughs) yeah 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 I don't either (laughs) same here not anymore (laughs) but um so right now I'm working in uh technology helping startups and um doing a lot of product strategy that's awesome yeah, that sounds great, and we will get to it. But why don't we start with the start? Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, your background, where you're from, and maybe you know when you started uh, getting into this whole tech and design thing? Sure. So, growing, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is a really small liberal town in Western Mass. Uh, it's not Boston. <laughs> Usually when I introduce myself and say I'm from Massachusetts, people say, oh, Boston, when growing right. up, I've been there maybe five times. <laughs> how? Um, I don't know that much about Massachusetts. How far is it from Boston? Depending on who drives. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a school bus or when my overly cautious mother drives, it's like 
you know, four hours. But um, by train, it's really not so bad. It's maybe an hour and a half, but far enough that I didn't go as much as I probably should have. But um, I was really happy where I grew up. It was a small town, super liberal. Um, my high school put on uh, the vagina monologues even as a oh. student production. That um, is awesome. I've seen those yeah. in college, and they're really cool. Slightly um, uncomfortable as a dude the first time you ever see it. But <laughs> yeah, especially the- when you're 16 years old, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, luckily I wasn't 16 when I saw them for the first time, but... Uh, yeah, that's some cool. That's that's yeah, an awesome. Yeah, the school. school was really great. Um, really progressive. For example, we got rid of honors and AP classes, and and I mean we as in the community and started integrating all the classes because they realized students were self-selecting and some students ended up not taking honors classes or AP classes because they thought it was too challenging or just didn't think that they would be up for the challenge. And when they started integrating the classes, a lot of students started completing the honors program and the AP program when before they wouldn't have. So, yeah. Hmm. It's like a psychological barrier was exactly, broken down. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, really loved where I grew up. Everyone, the philosophy was you can do anything. And, yeah, at the same time, I didn't want to stay in a small town forever. It was a small college town. So it still had the small town vibe, but enough of a college influence that it didn't feel so closed off. So after um, after that, I decided to move to New York City. All right, cool. So why don't you tell us about, uh, I guess, some initial experiences uh, on the web, you know, or, or just, uh, I guess, with the graphical interface that you've gotten so good at? <laughs> so, um, well... The reason why I came to New York City was to go to Persons to study fashion. And the reason why I liked fashion, which now looking back was the wrong assumption, was because when I was in middle school, this game came out. I don't know if you guys played it, but uh, it's called The Sims. Wow, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, oh, yeah. part of this, it goes, like, SimCity, and then The Sims came out, and I, since I love SimCity Sim so much, I got the game right away and started playing it and, like, maximized all the achievements, such as, like, you know, the, the most optimized way to get the best career, the biggest house, like, and the most affairs. Like, you <laughs> name it, affairs. I did it in that game. The most affairs. Wait, it was... Um... Rosebud, right? Yeah. It was like Rosebud exclamation yeah, point. Simoleons. Simoleons. Or was it only so. a thousand? <laughs> you know, you know what I used to do? No joke. I remember one day I was like, "There's no see." The, I, I'm an idiot now looking back because if I was smart, I would have fi- figured out how to duplicate or replicate the code over and over and over again with like um, just programming, right? I would have created a program that went in and then just continued to input um, the <laughs> the word Rosebud into the like the cheat box. But in but instead what I did was I wrote the word Rosebud like a shit ton of times. <laughs> and then I got tape and I just taped down the enter. Look key. at you. And I and I like went outside I went outside and liked to play. And I came back <laughs> and I had more money than I ever needed. 
While you guys were doing that, I was uh, figuring out how to clean up puke in Roller Coaster Tycoon. Oh but, my god, yeah, I, I love that rest. game too! <laughs> I love that game! Especially when you build this psychotic roller coaster, and then you put a hot dog sand right in front of it, so people eat while they're waiting oh, yeah. in line, and then they puke and they come out. You better believe See, it. I built coasters where they would puke at the sight <laughs> of it. I was cynical. I'd purposely build, like... I purposely would not finish the roller coaster. And yeah, you'd build, on. like, the death the death coaster. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so anyways, you were really into I The Sims. I was so into this game. But the achievements only go so far. So once you already have the biggest house and, like, you're dating everyone in the entire neighborhood, there's not much more to do. And then I realized, well, everyone that they're dating all looks the same. So then I decided, well, you know, like I like to draw. Let me flex those artistic muscles. And fired up Photoshop and did a lot of research and figured out that it's actually not that hard to mod the game. All you have to do is go in, and they already have texture files. And textures are basically this image that wraps around the 3D model to create things like a head or the body. So all you have to do is open that into Photoshop, and then you can draw your own outfits and faces. It was really easy to do. So out of my own need of needing the different-looking sims, I just started making different faces and different outfits and uploaded it to this simple website that I coded myself at, like, age 13 that looked horrible <laughs> but just a place to throw it up and see if anyone else had the same same problem and people started downloading them and then people started emailing well we, twitter wasn't around so people were still just emailing me photos of their sims wearing my outfits in different situations such as uh-huh. their house burning down and they're wearing you know among design <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> like, how did you mm-hmm. uh... So how did you figure out how to create these outfits and then get them to render properly and embedded into the actual game? Was there like, I'm sure that there was a community that existed, but we did not have the Google that we have today. In fact, it was not even a verb (laughs) at the time. Um, Forms were a really big thing. Are forms still big today? I don't know. You know, I don't. I think, so. I think I think they are. I just don't think that they take the the dress, no pun intended, <laughs> of of like a traditional forum. Like designer news is a is a, a designer hacker news. They're both technically exactly. forums. They're just around pre existing content. Well, yeah, they, no, I guess they, you could just ask a question too and still get comments. No, but I, I mean they're still alive and well. But I think they're definitely more niche. It, well, which yeah. is, actually they were uh, then too, but. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah, but like people just like when there's some when people are passionate about something, especially games, people congregate and and help each other out. That's what I really loved about the gaming community mm-hmm. is when I was just getting started, people would post tutorials, even just really simple things like figuring out uh, really easy ways to line things up or um, little hacks and tricks that you can do and building applications around helping other people mod the game, such as um, a way to test your outfits. Like, that was one of the hardest parts, is depending on which 3D mesh that you use, that the seams lined up on the sides. So when they lift their arms, it doesn't look like, you know, the front doesn't match the back. 
So that was one of the most annoying things to test because every time you test, you have to shut down the game, exit completely, open up the game, which is like 10 minutes, especially for a kid on a crappy computer. <laughs> so... Or on your compact Presario. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those. So, yeah, it was just an awesome community, just like today. People helping each other out, giving feedback, people posting things that they've made and people critiquing it, using it. And that's what keeps keeps you going. It's not that you're getting paid for it, but just feeling like you made a difference in someone else's life. And so I just kept making <laughs> game game stuff. So I went from making like faces and and um, skins and then wallpaper and furniture and uh, food. So that way when they go to the grill, they can cook up like, you know, a filet and other food that wasn't available mm-hmm. in the game and just started growing from there and, you know, got some partnerships that drove a lot of traffic from bigger sites um, and use that as gas money, essentially, by putting ads on the site. <laughs> nice. So it seems like from the way you're speaking about it, how passionate you were that this, yes, it was kind of fueling your passion for fashion. <laughs> but I think, I think, but I think this right here is the moment where you like fell in love with all of this. Yeah, except I didn't know it at the time. That's exactly. the thing is, I thought what I loved about it was designing the clothes, not the process of building something from nothing, which is one, identifying a problem and then solving it in a really simple, small way and then testing it by throwing it up there and being embarrassed about how crappy the site looks. But then if you're solving a problem that other people have, they'll bear with you and they don't care that it's hosted on like this like slow shit free server because they'll wait for it they'll wait for the download and give you feedback and tell you what you like what they liked and what works and what they don't like well you can tell when the download numbers are low and then you just keep iterating and take that feedback and you get to build a much bigger and better site and then also look for business opportunities to grow your audience such as forming your own community by putting up your own forum and um, looking at larger sites and seeing if there's something that you can do to partner with them, such as guest designing something and they'll link back to you or getting on newsletters and getting, it's just basically content marketing. <laughs> totally. I have a quick question here. What, when, you know, inevitably when mom asked, you know, what it is you're doing in there, how, how did you explain what it is you oh, were doing? Oh, gosh. So first... <laughs> did, did you literally say you were making clothes for computer no, people? No, I was so embarrassed by it. I didn't even tell my friends in, in school. I was kind of a latchkey kid growing up, so I was raised by a single mom, and she worked all the time. And so <laughs> I did it right when I got home from school to the time that she got back, and I was really good at like the alt-tabbing to make sure all the screens came, came down and it looked like I was doing my homework when really I was <laughs> building this site. And she had no idea until tax time when like I actually like stupidly <laughs> didn't know this was going to happen, but when you make money online with ads, they will send you tax forms in the mail which you can't really hide and I didn't know how to do taxes and that's when I had to come clean that yeah mom <laughs> so I've been building this thing um on the side for instead of doing my homework <laughs> oh, that's 
crazy. But I assume you weren't like failing at school though either. It sounds like you're a pretty smart kid if you're making money that er- you know uh, early on. Yeah, yeah. I mean. My mom wasn't exactly a tiger mom, but still she expected <laughs> a certain level of grades. And and Amherst, since it's a college town, also has fairly high standards, even in high school. So it, it wasn't cool to get bad grades. So, so that was important to me, too. But also this was a... I feel like it's a different learning experience because school at the end still was just learning rote skills, learning, um, like, memorizing things, memorizing formulas, whereas this was just real-life business-building experience. And I'm really glad I got that um, when it was early and when I didn't have to worry about paying the bills (laughs) versus after I graduated from college and I didn't have the same freedom to experiment like I did then. That's crazy. That's yeah, that's awesome. It you know, it sounds like sort of like a perfect storm just because you had an environment that was uh mentally stimulating enough that would it seems like everyone there is well educated to an extent um that you can sort of go on your own endeavors, but then there's also this very firm respect and and I don't want to say love, but maybe love for education and knowledge. So it's like, wait, I I'm stimulated by all these really smart people around me, but I also need to enjoy education. But they're also sort of pushing me in a direction that's like, let's figure things out on my own. Exactly. And what what's really strange, though, is that Amherst is a really progressive town, like not even just for the vagina monologues, but also we had classes like Death and Dying. And I know it sounds like a joke, but it was actually one of the most difficult classes that I took. But at the same time, it's super progressive, but not a lot of people really understood the different options, career options that people have. For example, technology is something that people didn't understand as well. So when I spoke with the guidance counselor, when we were all choosing colleges and everyone, we all, like everyone had to talk about what colleges they were applying to. And of course, my list was all design schools, which worried not only my mother, but also the the school counselor thinking that are you sure you don't want just like a safety net liberal arts college in there just in case you change your mind and you know you decide over the summer that design isn't right for you without really understanding that design doesn't equal fine art and it doesn't equal traditional things that you think of such as designing a magazine or designing a book cover there's so much to it that I feel like a lot of school administrators at that time didn't understand. So I think that's another reason why, out of this entire experience, my takeaway was, I want to be a fashion designer, mm-hmm. not I wanted to learn more about business or wanted to learn about uh, like starting a business or design in terms of products. Cool. So that's a good segue. You have decided you're going to a design school. You've actually decided on the school. Why don't you take us uh, there now? You've you've gotten in, um, and what does the beginning of, of design school feel like? Uh, so one thing that's really smart about design school that we all complained about to death our first year is the, the way design school works for a lot of schools is even though when you apply, you elect a major, in, the, in my case, fashion, the first year they put you through foundation which is a program that everyone has to do except for I think photography students and they teach you everything from basic design uh, basic 2d design 
and 3D design, which is solving three-dimensional design problems, such as building a chair or what they call a resting device, and you can interpret that and build that out of mm. wood or any other materials you want. Um, drawing, such as going to the Metropolitan Museum and sitting there for hours and hours and hours and drawing from life, um, to just general art history, design history, to make sure that you're exposed to the different options before you start self-selecting what you want to do based on your preconceptions from high school. So in my Uh, case, that was like one of the best things to happen to me because I realized I am just not good at 3D design. It wasn't something that I was interested in. It wasn't something that I was good at. But instead, I was... I absolutely loved anything to do with digital design or in, in 2D design and problem solving. That's great, though. That's valuable. You know, it separates, it kind of allows everyone to follow their passion. Exactly. And then spend spend the remainder of their time there working on what exactly, they really want to do. Exactly, and find your passion and also get used to fighting for yourself in, in New York City, which is so completely different than where I came from. Totally. How how was the? This is like a hopefully a small tangent. How was the transition from Amherst? Amherst. Yeah, Amherst. Amherst the H is silent. It's A M H E R S. Oh, Amherst. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what was the transition like from Amherst to New York? Um, not only that, but you went from a a place that was really really focused on education, and and granted, you just didn't go to a regular liberal arts school. Did you have? Uh, did it meet your expectations? Uh, were you nervous? Oh, super nervous. Everyone, I was surrounded by so many insanely smart people at Parsons. Like one of the first things that really struck me was in high school, even though it's a very education-centric area, when teachers would pose a question, you'd look around and nobody would raise their hands. People wouldn't volunteer. But my first class, or I remember when the professor was giving a demo, people without even asking would just get out of their seats and rush to the front of the class in order to get a better look. People were very competitive. (laughs) Yeah. And um, another thing that I was definitely, it took me a while to get used to, is just being able to present yourself. I think that's one of the best lessons that I learned coming out of Parsons is sometimes presentation can be more important than your work. Just being able to explain your design Mm. decisions. So every single class, the way they have it structured is critique-based. So you come into class and you paste all of your work onto the walls. And then one by one, you get up in front of the class, which at first was terrifying because you're surrounded by so many of your extremely intelligent peers. And you explain your work, which you're also emotionally attached to, not only because you're 18 years old, but also it just feels so precious to you because you haven't done as much work at that time and it feels very personal. And you're explaining what the work that you've done and people just tear it apart like sometimes you get like compliment sandwiches so they start with a compliment and then they give you the critique and then they end with the compliment Mm. but then after a while you realize that you know it's it's better sometimes to just skip to the middle of the sandwich the good part and yeah the first year was tough just you know it just trains you that ideas are a dime a dozen and like you just have to 
ex- just exhaust your creativity and come up with ideas over and over and over again and pitch them to the class and take the criticisms and not cry when the professor comes up and rips your work from the wall, rip it up in front of the whole class and tell them it's not worthy to even take up wall space. Man, that is well, intense. You've had, had professors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I've had uh, like classmates run out of the room crying. (laughs) That is wild. You know, it's it's interesting because it's like I I respect and understand the exercise and that an idea is strictly an idea. It's nothing personal. Um, It's just very much just a a random thought that came to your head. You try to bring it to life. If it didn't work out, that's fine. You you all have plenty others. But that that's. I guess that's good training, right? Uh, prepare yourself for the worst. Uh, what is it? Like expect the best, prepare for the worst or whatever? And it sounds like that was pretty much – or I don't know, expect the worst. I don't know, something like that. But, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, but it's just so nice though because even now sometimes I catch myself because – when you're at a startup, nobody knows exactly where you're going. There's no such thing as a five. Or I mean, you tell people that you, your company has a five and ten year plan. You, you know, you you have a story, but really, you don't really know where it's going. And like, it's all about problem solving. For example. In design school, it's not an assignment to, let's say, design a poster. There's a challenge in there, such as design a poster in order to accomplish this goal. And when you're when you're proposing these ideas, these ideas are really just solutions to the problem. And there will always be more and more solutions. And you're just looking for what's the most elegant solution I can think of now. And by telling you it's not good enough and ripping your work down, it just challenges you to go back and think, is there a better solution? There always will be. And it's the same thing with my work now is there will always be a better solution. And you can't be afraid of the sunk cost that you put in just because you thought of this idea last night in the shower and you thought it was brilliant. You have to test it. And if it's not, it's okay. Just, you know, move on. There's nothing, you can't be too precious about your work. When do you think you, uh, you realize that? Realize that I can't be. Too, well, I can't realize that like your work is work. While it's an extension of you, it's not a. Uh, when someone gives you a critique, it's not a. It's not a personal insult. They're just they're they're discussing the work by itself. You realize that pretty quickly, especially since it's critique based. You're critiquing your peers' work too. Gotcha. So, and also you're just coming up with such volume. For example, one class, I took a corporate design class with John Nunman. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, I think. Every single, there was one project for the entire semester. So we all thought going into the class, oh, this is going to be a cakewalk, one project. Usually it's like one project a week. So we're like, okay, this is going to be fine. We're going to come up with our concept the first week. Next week, we'll refine it. The third week, like it was, it was just going to be easy. So the first week you come in with three options, which is usually the, you know, the way you do it. So you have one, you know, kind of traditional option, one that's pushing the limits a little bit, that's more creative and artsy, and then another one that's maybe more business focused. And you present those. And then it was just no all around the room. He Mm. just kept telling us, you weren't getting it. You didn't get it. And 
after the like the fifth or sixth week, he still told us, none of you are understanding this assignment, which is to create a corporate brand. And that's when it started clicking for us that we were approaching the problem in a, a way that's too visual and not really thinking about solving the problem. Well, yeah, I think, I think and it comes back to um, what you were saying, Patrick, and kind of that little um, uh, short story I shared with you guys before when we spoke um, was that UX course that I sat in on uh, recently at NYU. Uh, it was very much... Nick, what was the, what was the short story again? The, I'm telling you right now. Oh, okay. Well, you said the other time we spoke, I said, and I was like, well, yeah. The UX course that I sat on um, at NYU, was a, it was an intro to UX kind of course thing. I think it was put on by Code Academy. But uh, long story short, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of, I overheard a lot of, this is beautiful. This is gorgeous. This is beautiful. You know, but no one really commenting on the actual functionality or on the thoughtfulness of placement or, you know, the purpose of it. Right. There was no discussion on, okay, this may be beautiful, but guess what? It's also happens to be extremely functional. So they did a, they did a double great job. It was just all about the aesthetics. And so I think that goes back to your point, Mong, where it's like a lot of people get caught up in the visuals, uh, so caught up in the visuals that they forget that, okay, does this make sense for the user? Is this is this helping the user achieve what they need to be achieving on your app, or is it simply gorgeous? You know exactly, exactly. And I think that's one thing that. Well, actually, now that I think about it, like one side of the, uh, one side of the coin, I feel like design school really helped in a making you articulate about your work so such as in that example um, I had classes where they would outlaw that word Mm -hmm. beautiful you had to be able to back up every single design decision with a concrete answer so for example why is this red it's red because it accomplishes this because it makes the person feel this way or because that's the system that runs throughout this entire brand or like why did you use this typeface you can't say well it's because it's my favorite typeface no it's this typeface because it conjures up you know this meeting because historically this typeface was used in this this context you have to be able to explain your work but then at the same time after doing more client work when I graduated, it can be dangerous because you could then back into almost anything with a, with a good presentation, especially when you're able to articulate your work and then be able to defend decisions that may not actually be the best decision. It's hard to walk that line between the designed instinct that you honed in art school and mm-hmm. the data that backs it up so such as the poster yes you can back up everything that went into it and say why it's successful but if you post it and nobody attends the event maybe it wasn't so much of a successful design and same with with tech and websites and apps mong i got a question for you and then we can start learning about other parts of your life like throughout this whole journey but um in regards to like backing up your design choices and decisions have you read uh jason freed from 37 signals which is now just base camp wrote an article yeah. did you see that article he wrote about um uh, i'm trying to find it now design choices jason Fried. let's see so basically it's all the questions that he asks um when reviewing like new designs 
Um, and all of them oh. fall into the similar vein of what you're talking about. So it's very much like, why, why this color? Why this placement? What was the purpose here? Why did you decide to do this? And it's, uh, they're all very simple questions, but a lot of them seem to be rooted in purpose. Exactly. Uh, I okay. just Googled it and I'm reading it. And yes, exactly. Oh, you did? Can you, can you share it in the chat? That way I'll throw it in the show notes. Oh, uh, sure. For when we go, for when listeners are listening. That way they can see it too. It, it made its wave, but I can't find it for whatever reason. Um, cool. Anyways, okay. So we're still, we're currently in college um, still in terms of your path. And it sounds like you learned a lot, but at what point were you able to apply that to um, your work? And by that, I mean in a internship or full-time context. Full-time obviously can be like freelance or anything like that. Right. So throughout college, it was very print-driven. It was still rooted in the traditional design sense of teaching principles and not the tools. So um, I, I, it was just mostly print work and advertising. I feel like at that time, I think it's very different now, but at that time, it, all the students are put on agency track. So when you're in school, they te- teach you how to present well and how to do uh, how, how to solve problems in print and in advertising, but not so much in how to design products. So when I graduated, I ended up at a uh, at an agency, essentially. It was a four-person design studio called Strategy Studio, which was started by a professor who I really enjoyed working with at school. And there, I, the reason why I chose a smaller agency was because I was afraid of being pigeonholed into a small role. I know that eventually I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't really know what that, knew what that, knew what that meant at the time, but I knew I wanted to, to start something. So I wanted to go somewhere small to see how it was done. And there, it was, it was awesome. There was only four of us. So we were all involved in just about every stage of the process. We had huge clients like Aetna and Prudential. And we also had smaller clients like, um, like a small theater in New Jersey. And there, it was just almost all marketing work. So print materials and uh, banners and mm-hmm. uh, ide- corporate identity and that's what we did until the recession hit it was 2008 and <laughs> it was really difficult to get work so after that we started to be a little bit strappy and taking on projects that maybe we shouldn't have and one of the projects that we took on that at the time we it was a learning curve for all of us was a product to help find engineers, to match engineers with engineering challenges around the world. So in one example would be, let's say, in a small town in um, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, Actually, it's not a small town, but in Ho Chi Minh City, let's say, um, maybe there's a small pond where there's water contamination. So then a resident there could take the problem, take a photo, upload it to this website, and then engineers such as retired and retired engineers, professors, and students could go on and find these problems and be able to work on a solution and find other engineers work together. So um, a, mechanical, a mechanical engineer could work with a civil engineer, collaborate, create a solution, upload it, and they would be able to execute it. So that was the big idea. Cool. But yeah, cool idea. Big indeed. 
Yeah, very big. Even now, I feel like this would be a very challenging project to take on. Um, but when your background is in marketing, the only websites that I've worked on at that time were marketing websites or uh, intranets for a large corporation. This is a big departure. You just have to completely shift your thinking. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, so uh, what was the outcome? How did it go? It was, as I said, a learning curve. So at first, we hired a, um, a, a an information architect who also taught at Parsons. I took his class named Erwin Chen, and he helped walk us through the entire process. So in a way, it's similar to what we do when we do when we approach print and marketing design, which is thinking about the end user. So let's say when we're designing a book or designing a poster, you're thinking about who will be seeing this? What environment are they in when they're interacting with this? And how do we communicate what we need them to know effectively? And when it comes to products, it's the exact same thing. So when you're sitting down, you're thinking, well, who's the audience? In this case, they're the problem havers and the problem solvers. And then you think about, well, what do they want out of this? What are their goals and what would make them feel successful on the site? And you just create this user flow map, which I do with all of my clients, is first, before we even think about UI or any sort of user patterns or other apps that you use on a daily basis without going to form, as we were talking about earlier. So before thinking about like a beautiful form, let's start with what people want. And mm-hmm. then from there, we start, you know, you start after you have the flow the wires almost kind of design themselves because you have to make sure each party can do what they need to in order to reach their goal as you mapped before and so then once you have the wires done you can start thinking more about visual design which is more of our forte at that time sure so then what was the situation after this project wherever it was you went and you know whatever other skills you continued developing where was the situation where that approach really worked out well for you? That honestly works well. I literally use that process with every single project I approach. Even even if it's a redesign, you have to think in terms of the user, which is why sometimes I even... You know, I'm not sure. It's hard to introduce myself because people like to use the term UI, UX designer, so user interface and user experience designer. But it's but you're really just being a user centric. You're really just the question asker. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. You're really thinking about. You're really the champion for the user, mm-hmm. and everything you do is to try to make them to to help them reach their goals and now also another big problem especially in that project is thinking about the environment in the community so not only do you have to think about how you can help them reach their goals in a way that fulfills um, the requirements so such as solving a problem but also how do you make it a good environment for that. So you can't really like design their experience. You're designing the environment in which the experience takes place. So putting the right things together to keep bringing them back and and facilitating those interactions. I like that. I'm I'm glad somebody realizes that 
you cannot develop the experience for every individual person, but the environment in which their experience takes place. Exactly. Um, so, okay, so you're doing this throughout school. It's Well, not throughout school, but throughout work, and it sounds like you learned it earlier on, which is good. Um, but so you, at, this was still at Strategy um, Studio, correct? Exactly, exactly. Where um, where'd you go after that? So after that, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. It was it was kind of like a aha moment. And by this, for me. you mean <laughs> that um, user experience, just product design, just really thinking gotcha. through products and and helping people accomplish things. And that's essentially what a product is in, in a way. So mm-hmm. after that, I just started um, just talking to people and seeing what people were working on. So. Um, a couple of projects that I was involved in. Um, I've worked in a lot of different industries because it, at the end, it's just problem solving. One project I worked on was a dating app. <laughs> so it's like online dating, but in reverse. It's called Cheeked. And Lori Cheek, the founder, was recently on Shark Tank pitching it. So the way it works is it's a little black card and if you see someone cute out in public and you're a little shy, you're not sure how to approach them and you don't want to drop a business card because maybe that's too too personal, too braggy, and they'll have all your personal information, you just get a cheeked card which has a unique code on it. And you just walk over to that cute person and slide them the card and book it out of there. And then when they see mm-hmm. the card, they're like, oh, so mysterious. And they go on cheek.com, enter that unique code, and they get to see your profile. And because it's unique, you get to see whether or not they looked they looked you up mm-hmm. using that code. And if they're interested, they start messaging you online. So it's like you meet them offline, you, and then you take it online, and then you meet them again in offline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, Definitely. So in that sense, it's solving a social problem, and we created a product around that. Where were you in your career when you were working on Cheeks? I'm assuming it's after Strategy Studio, correct? Right. So something about me is I really hate turning down opportunities because there's so many interesting problems to be solved. So I always like to work on little things on the side and help friends along with their products and and, and basically problem solve. So um, after that, I did something that I didn't think I would do before, but I really loved the team. So I joined a company called Social Flow. It's a social media enterprise app. And that's something that I'd mm-hmm. never worked on before is something that's A, B2B, and also enterprise. And that was a really, really great experience. Cool. What were, um, you, uh, what were you working on there at Social? So- I mean, obviously within the same realm of, of- – your design work, but uh, anything in was there anything in particular you were working on that they were like trying to get out the door while you were yeah working? yeah so my background at Parsons was in information design so taking a large amount of information figuring out what's important what's not important important building a story around it and creating an infographic or some sort of way to help people consume information and social flow is all about big data so what they do is they look at Twitter and all of the conversations that are happening and try to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time. And so 
per- it was a perfect match. <laughs> that was my background and what I studied, and also something that I wanted to pursue, which is product, and also learn how enterprise worked. So there, I was the first designer, even though they had already been around for, I believe, over two years when I joined. I was the first designer. So previously, it was. Um, engineers Noah Hammond who's incredible he was essentially the product designer and product managers before that did the product design role so coming in um, (laughs) it was it was it was really interesting because not only were we building new stuff but also slowly honing not only the brand but also the existing app which I can link to in the show notes Totally. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely do that. How long were you at uh, Social Flow? Uh, I was there for just over a year, and then I realized that I really missed working at a a smaller place. So, Mung, it you know, the good thing, and I guess somewhat bad thing sometimes about your work is that a lot of the stuff you do, while it does vary, because uh, the purpose of a project, the business objectives. The project itself might change, but it sounds like your role still is pretty consistent in that you need to figure out where the problems lie and how to help or nudge people along um, so that they can get their their primary goals or things that they want done. So, for instance, with Social Flow, um, somebody, a marketing person is probably using it to analyze social data, et cetera, and you need to be able to display that information or help design that information in a way that it can be consumed quickly um, and properly. That way they can get their job done. Throughout that process, whether social flow, whether it cheeked, whether that strategy, whether current or past other freelance um, projects, even in school, um, did you ever notice like um, maybe a consistent hurdle or maybe one hurdle that happened one time um, that really sticks in your mind? And and then what'd you learn? Yeah, and what'd you learn from it? Well, yeah, well, of course. Those are there. I guess there are two different experiences. So one is working with clients, and the other is working in house at a company like Social Flow. And what's different about it is that when you're working with a client, it's one about the presentation, and two, there is a final handoff where. You're, you're delivering a final product that they will then take and run with or then be able to raise funds with it and then hire someone who will be there full time. And then the part B would be being in-house where you're there every single day and iterating every single day, which I think is a much better process. And when people ask me, um, should I hire someone in-house or should I get a freelancer? I always say in-house. And the reason for that is when I'm thinking about product projects that I've worked on as a freelancer, even though I always try to do the best that I can, it's there are a lot of things that are really tricky. So one, you want to make sure your client is happy, definitely. And Clients don't always know what they want because they're not a designer. And sometimes you find yourself over-designing. Like, for example, when I look back on my early student work, I end up cringing because you always try to impress your peers and impress your professors by by adding too many things or mm-hmm. too many ideas. And when you get older and you've designed a little bit more with more experience, you start realizing that design 
is more subtractive than it is additive. So thinking about what can you take out? How can you simplify things? But sometimes when you're working with a client, they have a lot of really great ideas. And if you don't incorporate, it's really, it's very political and it's really making your clients happy and making them feel like they're part of the process and that their ideas are making it in because it is their baby. But at the same time, guiding them and and in a nice way, trying to urge them away from over-designing it or overworking it and creating something that's that's that could be more successful. And that's another problem. What's that? It's almost... Yeah. Oh, I was going to say is it almost sounds like as a student, uh, you know, as a as a student at Parsons, you learned very quickly that design that ideas are not personal. It sounds like now you are the teacher to sometimes to these clients who they might really, 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 really want this particular font at a particular size or color. And you're like, no, the usability is poor. And not only are you trying to convince them why with business, but you also need to teach them that, hey. You're gonna have another idea, and this one isn't that serious. So let's uh, let's do what's best for everybody. <laughs> exactly, and that's also tricky because if you're in house, you're working in tandem with other developers, or you get to launch, and you'll be there after the launch. Whereas you're, when you're freelancing, it's more a waterfall in a way where. Especially as a designer, I'm usually involved much earlier in the process where they rely on you to to spec out the project and create the wireframes and then create the visual design on top of that. And then that's what they'll use to then recruit a developer to make this happen. Sure. So you can't really test it along the way. So when you have a disagreement and they want – like you know, a certain color or a certain interaction. And you're not quite sure about that because in previous projects when you've done that pattern hasn't been successful and you're trying to urge them away from it, you don't have anything to help back you up other than past experience. Actually, uh, Braden um, Cowitz did a really good article about juggling those two things. So juggling your design instinct versus juggling the data to back it up and when you should rely on your instinct and when data should rule cool. and when you're working with clients it's must much more extinctual in a way the design the the client actually wants you to be more instinctual in a way because that's why they hired you they see you as a design expert and you know why should you ask questions you don't know that this is going to work i thought i hired an expert sure. and that mm -hmm. <laughs> so so it sets up a really difficult relationship where it's hard for you to admit that you don't know and actually nobody really knows until yeah. you launch it and you test it and it's okay to be wrong and that's what I really like about being in houses it's okay to be wrong and everyone there's no pressure on you well there is pressure but not so much pressure that you know all the answers and it's okay to test things and it's actually better to test a lot of things totally yeah. and I think I think a lot of what you just said comes from confidence as well once you you know you have the experience on your belt and you can uh suggest and recommend things confidently uh it's much different than suggesting and recommending things uh with a tone of question which will then obviously lead the client to question it uh, you yeah. know at all times so Mung, that actually sounded like great uh advice for people uh, in the industry or you know uh, looking to break in um 
you know, understanding the ins- when to use uh, instinct and when to use data to back up points. Um, but I have a question for you that kind of it, it provides advice in a different way, if you will. Um, thinking about little Mung sitting, uh, playing <laughs> The Sims, um, what yeah. would you, what would current Mung, today's Mung, say uh, to her? Uh, what sort of advice would she give her, um, just knowing what you know now? Oh, man. I would have been just keep going. Like, don't be embarrassed. It's okay to, to, to do something on your own and execute. In fact, I'm actually taking my own advice now because something that's different about back then when you're doing something for your own, um, well, a couple things. One is that you are much more apt to take risks, that you're able to really get, look at something that where there's a need and build it versus now I feel like it's, it's, a, it's kind of a trend to, to build products that solve a problem that nobody has. <laughs> but also another thing is that when I was little, I just started building. I didn't really think myself to death where I would talk myself out of things. I just, I just started. I had no idea what I was doing, but that's okay. I was young and I didn't feel like I need, needed to justify anything. Yep. I just went online and I looked it up and, and just did it. Whereas now I feel like because I have more experience, sometimes I catch myself thinking about things more instead of building where I have an idea and I end up talking myself out of it by saying, well, there are these companies that did something similar and they failed or Mm. this will never work because of X, Y, and Z and just analyzing it to death because that's what you do so much in everything else that you do, especially client work is just analyzing things instead of acting. Yeah, Monk, you got to take your own advice there and uh, use your instinct in those (laughs) those instances. Do it. Build it. <laughs> I think that's the case for everybody, though, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's uh, it's really easy to talk about stuff, but it's really hard to execute only because you then become vulnerable to criticism, um, not only from peers, but if if you launch something publicly, then from anybody who sees it. Which uh, I don't know any I don't know anyone who takes unsolicited feedback, especially if it's negative, very well. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a, you know, you learn. Your skin thickens over time. Exactly. So, Mung, awesome. All great responses. We are now to the moment you've been waiting for all of your <laughs> life, which is the secret fun time question, which is something <gasps> unique to the start where we kind of come up with a question that is uh, sometimes off the wall, but all the time awesome. And okay. uh, we are going to, yeah, throw one at you. It's going to be a curveball. And uh, here we go. Ooh, so okay. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I just enjoyed a, a little... Little fun size Mr. Good bar, and I'm wondering to myself, why do they call these little candy bars fun size? Wouldn't it be much more fun if you were eating a big one? Hmm, that's a wait. What is a fun size? Is it really small or is it the little yeah, one? Yeah, the little, the little it's chocolate a Halloween bars. size. From a designer's perspective, yeah, why is that fun? Because it's, it's a little. Euphemism. That's what we do when we present. <laughs> it's, it's just like real estate brokers selling a cozy apartment versus one that will fit oh, maybe no. your bed, and that's it. <laughs> that's funny, you know. So it, you use a positive word to mask something that's really exactly. negative. <laughs> yeah, because I want to be eating a huge chocolate bar right now. That would be fun for me. <laughs> Or, hey, Nick, why don't, why don't you come into my office so we can talk about your promotion? 
What they really mean is, oh. I'm kidding, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. I'd, I'd use someone else's example, but Nick's, I'm, you know, we're I'm all not even. Here. I'm not even sure where we just went there, but that's, hey, that's fine. I think, I think that's, I think that about sums it up. Yes, it does. Uh, Mung, here is the moment when you can tell us, uh, I guess, you know, what's up, what's coming up. You said you're working on some things. Are you going to be speaking anywhere? Let oh, us know. Um, I'm not sure yet. I'm just taking every day as it comes, just like I did when I was a little kid building The Sims, is not having huge expectations where you feel a lot of pressure in case you don't get there, just taking every day as it comes. But lately, um, two weeks ago, I was just at Angel Hack. Uh, judging and there are a lot of really awesome presentations there so I'm excited to do a little bit more of that but now yeah just working on uh, some projects with my friends such as my friend who I met at TED Active which I went to a couple months ago she is working on an amazing project I'm just going to do a really quick plug for her here called (laughs) happilywedding.com it's the easiest way to book a wedding did you know that booking a just Planning the entire wedding takes 900 hours for average couples. What? Yeah, I, did I didn't know, know that, that either. By, by by couples, you basically mean a majority of the women because the guys <laughs> would never – there would never – there wouldn't be a wedding industry if guys did it all themselves. Sorry, guys. But yeah. Well, actually, there would be. There would be because they'd be like, okay, what do I have to pay you to do every like, yeah, single thing? Oh, that's even better because she is a one-stop shop wedding planner where she's combining – this yeah. is amazing. Technology actually. with wedding planning. So she gets that 900 hour number way, way, way down. And she will do any kind of That's wedding cool. as, as traditional or as weird as you want. This this mm-hmm. is actually, yeah, this is, I'm on Valerie and Scott's Casual California Canyon wedding right now. And I can book the whole package right here. Venue, catering, hair and makeup, boom. Yeah. Oh, that's a package. Really good. And you can that swap really things cool. out. So if you don't mm-hmm. like it's your like... cake, no problem. And the founder, Sarah Shui, she is brilliant. Amazing. We will definitely wow. add this to the show notes. Yeah, very cool. This is actually, you know, it, my cousin's getting married soon. I know a lot of people in the process of getting married. Hopefully they're not too deep into it because this would uh, make their lives a lot easier. Exactly. Easier. And you get to work with Sarah, who's the producer Um, for TED Active. She is incredible. The most productive person I've ever met in my life. Well, we might have to go ahead and try to get Sarah on uh, the show then. I would love that. I'd love to talk with her too. I'll ask her. So thanks so much, Mung. That was awesome. Um, Mung, one last thing. Where can we find you online? Oh, sure. It's really easy. It's mynameismung.com. And my name is spelled M E. NG. So my name is M-E-N-G.com. Sweet. And as always, those are available in the show notes. And thank you, Mung. That was awesome. We really appreciate yeah, you Mung, being on the show. Thank you guys so much. Bye, Nick. Bye, Patrick. <laughs>